Jonathan Barth joins us today. He is history professor at Arizona State University, author of The Currency of Empire, Money and Power in 17th Century English America. And he's also associate director of the Center for American Institutions at ASU. The center recently issued a report on the teaching of American history in higher education in the United States. The results of the report are our topic today. It's a timely one. Uh, higher ed is so much in the news, and of course, U.S. history is a, a contested field in that area. But welcome, Professor Barth. Thank you very much for having me. First, tell us, what does the Center for American Institutions do? Well, we are a center at Arizona State University that's focused on revitalizing the institutions that are most essential, foundational to what made America a great and exceptional country. And we believe that uh, liberty is a very precious thing, and but that there are certain institutional prerequisites for sustaining and preserving liberty that uh, is oftentimes missing in the college classroom. And so, so we just seek to bring that message to students and to talk about everything from civic institutions to the family, to the military, to legal institutions, economic institutions, religion. All of this comes together to create the foundations of a free society. But we uh, last year conducted a report on the teaching of American history because education is very central to what we do. And the results probably won't shock your audience, but uh, essentially, well, what we did, we had a team of researchers look at publicly available syllabi for U.S. history courses. And for those in your audience who don't know, the U.S. survey is usually divided in half. Usually the, the first half goes up to 1877, and then the second half goes from 1877 to the present day. And what we found was a consistently negative uh, message, uh, the conclusion that America is a failed experiment, that it was doomed from the beginning. And if it is exceptional at all, it's only uh, its exceptionality only comes in, in its uh, unique viciousness and oppression that America is a false country founded on lies and not really worth preserving. And that is the overall tenor of not... All of these, not all of the survey classes that we looked at, but a great majority of them included some of these themes. And, and these, were, these were the survey classes, right? These weren't specialized classes, more advanced, where, you know, you, you, you could think, okay, we can get, have a little more of a critical perspective on things. Once we get sort of the basic stories, the events, the characters, the, the important texts, taken care of in, in the survey course. No, the survey course is already giving a very strong angle on, on the history there. That's right. And, and we shouldn't underestimate the power of these survey courses, because what your audience needs to know is that uh, non-history majors are oftentimes required to take these courses. But history majors have been, they've been declining. Enrollment in upper division history courses has been, been declining, especially over the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. But Non-history majors, including STEM majors, and then including uh, future K through 12 teachers. So this all has downstream effects. Enroll in these courses, and this is their main exposure to the history of this country. And if you are a foreign national studying at this uni 
at this university and at ASU, we have we have many students coming from abroad. This is their only exposure to U.S. history. Hmm. Hmm. And then that perspective is carried. You know, they they graduate with some other major, but their their view on on our shared culture, our shared history, is is tainted by by these courses. These yeah. are these are highly ideological courses. You know, I, I hadn't thought about that, but for a whole lot of students, this is the only history they're going to. And when we look at the high school teaching of history, when we look at, say, uh, U.S. history test scores on the National Assessment of Educational Progress, they're abysmal, right? I mean, kids graduate from high school actually knowing very little about, about U.S. history. And they may have had a class. It just didn't stick. And so this course will be, yeah, uh, for for the international ones, certainly, but also a lot of these Americans, this is it. And they're, they're going to leave college with that, with that impression, right? And, and let's, let's, be, let's be clear, Jonathan, th this is the point, right? This is the point. Uh, so let me, ask you, let me ask you just a side question for, for a moment, because this isn't in the report, but the, you say the history major is going down. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I've seen this in English, my, my field, and I, I know a lot of the outside pressures on, on the humanities majors. Well, you know, college is so expensive now. They don't see, you know, high job prospects getting right out of college and so on. And I, I'm sure that that's a factor. But I also find that another factor is that the negative message, it's such a downer. Mm -hmm. why, why would you want to major in studying something that, that is, is kind of negative and bad and, you know, uninspiring. Why would you want to do that? Do, do, you, do, you, do you buy that idea? No, I, I think that's correct. It's, it's also a very cynical way to view the world. Yeah. Um, it's, it's influenced by critical theory. Uh, uh, if you want to go real deep into it, you know, Foucault and deconstruction. It, basically, it, a view of the world that interprets all social interactions as just baked with power dynamics, just power struggle everywhere. And, and this uh, uh, all permeating matrix of oppressor versus oppressed. And it's a, it's, it's not a very uplifting <laughs> yeah. uh, topic of study. I think that has part is partly to do with it. I've spoken with students who are politically conservative or even just moderate and, and the courses have become too political for them. Uh, they are a lot, many of these courses focus almost exclusively on identity. Yeah. That and that includes for upper division courses. But in the in the introduction survey, I mean, especially the second half of the survey that deals with post Civil War, it is just identity, 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 just drilled into your head. A lot of these students would would love to take a course on Roman Empire or ancient Greece or. Yeah. You know, Byzantine, uh, you know, classical political history, or even something like the history of uh, Han China, or something like that. But those courses aren't available, and and it's 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 a lot of uh, race, sexuality, uh, uh, gender history, and in it. And as a result, many students who would otherwise be drawn to the study of history uh, bow out and and major in something else. Yeah. You know, uh, in terms of the, the timing of the report, you know, and maybe the timing of, of the center there, uh, its creation, we hear a lot these days about civic and history education. 
a lot more than we did really just, I mean, I mean, 10 years ago, did you hear people talking about history and civics education? We've got a big problem. Uh, what, what, what do you think is causing the, the, the rise in concern over history and civics education? Well, you know, the founders were uh, talked about how if, if, if you don't have just a basic, um, if you don't have uh, a basic educated public, if a public that doesn't know its history, um, you know, liberty is, is, is on precarious footing. And so I think there is, many Americans are, are aware that if, if, if the next generation doesn't know about the American Revolution, the next American, if the next generation doesn't know about the sacrifices that were made all throughout history by uh, many brave men and women who put everything out on the line to, to create, we're beneficiaries of this, right? Uh, to create this uh, culture and, and great country, then you know we the will become lax and and liberty will be lost. So I think there is a a deep appreciation for the the need of just basic basic uh, history education. We're not getting it in the schools. The K through twelve K through twelve has failed, and then in the colleges, it's become so ideological. Let me um, just one quote from one of the syllabi that we looked at, Mark. Perfect. This is uh, from the first half, uh, syllabus from the first half of the survey. This is at a major university. The syllabus says uh, that students will, quote, grasp how inequality was woven into the nation's very constitution. So <laughs> if you're taking this class and you're learning that inequality was woven into the nation's constitutions, what, constitution, what do you conclude? Well, you conclude the constitution's got to go. Uh, right. Uh, or here's another one. Students will, quote, see how race and racism is snarled in every part of U.S. history. Well, who wants to be part of a history like that? Uh, you know, and so missing is complexity, nuance, uh, global context. I mean, the, the fact is, you know, I'm not saying anything that your audience doesn't know, but many students don't realize this, that slavery was ubiquitous all the way up through the 19th century. What makes yeah. America unique is is the struggle in, 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 in abolishing it. And so students just have this warped, distorted view of the, of the history. And, and, then, and then you have, and this gets back to your last question, then you no longer have a nation worth defending. Right. Why, why would you right. want to defend a nation like this if, if, if this is all you know about it? Exactly. I mean, uh, uh, the, the language of what you read, the verbs, right, snarled. Right. You want to say, OK, there, 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 there's some there's an animus here in this teacher. And, you know, we, we remember being undergrads. You're picking courses. The teacher is going to matter. And you read a description like that. I would I would read that and I say, I'm not sure I want that teacher to be grading my papers. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm really going to get a fair shake uh, out of out of that teacher there. There's again, there's something there's some there's some energy. In, mm -hmm. in that description that is mm -hmm. not the proper energy of a historian. No. Uh, I mean, historians, uh, again, if you're in a graduate class and you want to, you know, deep probe, deep, after you've got the base, right, of knowledge, okay, fine. But uh, for 19-year-olds for here, uh, these, are, these are pretty impressionable minds, especially when those minds just don't know very much, uh, very, very much history. What do those teachers think? is the impact on the students of their instruction. Mm. I mean, do they, do they feel like, 
I am enlightening these kids who've been watching the wrong movies and TV shows and maybe maybe been listening too much to their parents or their grandparents who might have you know served in the army and and bring their patriotism in this class i'm going to i'm going to straighten them out i think there's i think that's a large element in it they call it critical pedagogy <clears throat> okay critical critical pedagogy came out of the 1960s there was a brazilian author who wrote a book called the pedagogy of the oppressed and it's essentially critical pedagogy is is the the idea of using the the classroom as as indoctrination it's in order to create uh a a an activist it's it's intentionally activist it seeks to create activist and yeah. so i think there's that element to it and then there's a like you mentioned like a deprogramming element and i think a lot of this goes back to you know uh, with Marxism and after the failed Marxist revolutions in, in Berlin and in 1918, 1919, you saw the rise of the Frankfurt School in the 1920s that sought to explain why, why did the, this revolution fail? And, uh, and um, Marxism broadened its scope beyond class to culture writ large. Yep. And a big a core element of Marxism is uh, eliminating those, you know, Marx said religion was the opiate of the masses, eliminating what they see are, you know, uh, tired prejudices that are, are, are blinding uh, the, the, in the case of classical Marxism, the proletariat, or in the case of the neo-Marxists, the, uh, the marginalized that are preventing them from becoming, um, pursuing the truly activist uh, uh, um, solutions that are necessary for liberation. It's about liberation and, and putting aside the old. Um, many of these people have a very uh, condescending and negative view of, of anything that smacks of tradition, um, traditional values, Christianity, anything associated with the West is uh, completely off limits. And, and it, it it actually, you know, it's a bit Rousseauian. You create this new utopia out of the ashes of, of destroying the old. You know, uh, the allegation that academia has a left-wing bias often brings the countercharge, well, conservatives or even classical liberals or even moderate liberals, you're just making that up. You, you just want to score political points. And what the irony is what, what you just said, they say this, mm -hmm. they proclaim we want to make social change agents. You go yep. look at the, the School of Education. You mentioned, you mentioned a lot of trained teachers take these courses. Schools of Ed, it is, it is explicit in their definition of what they, what they do. Mm -hmm. And Paulo Freire is, is the most popular author, right, mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ed schools. So yep. uh, here is, I mean, here's a question. I mean, Jonathan, you may be too young to, to have seen this because well, when I was an undergrad, you know, in 1980, there were, there were still a lot of older professors who I think were probably all liberals of some kind, but they believed in, in, in teaching the material straight. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, they would they 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 you didn't see a big, strong angle, a, a heavy bias. 
on mm-hmm. on their part. Uh, but boy, it really changed quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it it was I mean, it seemed like it seemed like to go from 1980 to 1990 mm-hmm. uh, when I finished grad school. Everything had changed toward this strong identity fixation. Now, I mean, do you know? Was it just was it just an older generation dieth away, <laughs> and the kids were were coming up? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Don't know. Well, they've done. There are some really great surveys of the political orientation of faculty, and from about the late nineteen sixties through the early nineties. Yeah, sure. You had a plur- a plurality were liberal, yeah. but you're like forty to fifty percent identified as liberal, according to these same studies. About twenty percent, and sometimes as high as twenty five, thirty percent identified as conservative. These are faculty, and that was the case for a good twenty twenty five years. Now you look at there was a Harvard Crimson poll last year. Less than t- fewer than two percent. Of Harvard faculty identify as conservative. Think about that. Fewer than 2% uh, identify in a category that close to half the country identifies. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you, you look at the ratio of liberal to conservative faculty nationwide. It's about 6 to 1. But that includes STEM. If you take away STEM, I mean, you're talking 30 or 40 to 1. Yeah. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, yeah. And and it and it it's self perpetuating because these professors train graduate students. Right. They, they they make up the search committees that then hire PhD grads to become newly appointed faculty, and and then you know it just continues. And so this is a really difficult question: How do we get out of this? How do right. we how do we reform this system? It's one. It's a question that I've really struggled with because. I actually really uh, empathize with the the idea of faculty governance, and you know, I don't sure. want some administrator, you know, getting all up in the unit's business. But when you have these highly corrupted disciplines, which is what I, I think it's fair to uh, characterize them, you, I mean, how else do you, how do you, uh, how do you reform that without some sort of external yeah. Ex- external um, uh, doing, you know, I mean, <laughs> at a certain point, so uh, at a certain point, we, we've got to intentionally, the, the university needs to deliberately hire faculty with different views it, it, in the same right. way that universities for the last 10, 20 years have hired other, have targeted other diversity hires. Um, why does intellectual or ideological diversity not count? Uh, as as a worthy goal for the university to pursue. And so administrators should really uh, deliberately uh, seek to diversify the faculty intellectually. The problem is administrators are even more political than than the uh, faculty. I think the, the numbers I saw, it's about 12 to 1 liberal to conservative among university administrators. So it's not going to come from the university administrators either. Yeah, yeah. Let me get to another uh, uh, report finding, and that is uh, a, quote, anti-market bias in these courses. What's that about? Well, you know, I mean, I, I, if you look at the 20th century, the story of the 20th century, 
standard of living went up all across the board. Okay, it just did. That's a fact. And uh, for all groups, if you compare standard of living from the beginning of the 20th, 20th century to the end, it's there's no question whatsoever. And yet, the predominant story that we see we found in syllabi for the second half of the survey was uh, this uh, just heavily anti-market, anti-capitalist agenda narrative. Um, and it's just it's a curious <laughs> it's a curious way to to look at the economic history of the 20th century. I mean, by any objective metric, I mean the United States became just an absolute economic powerhouse in the 20th century, especially after the Second World War. Well, well Jonathan, you, you mentioned economic metric. A secondary finding on that same issue is the remarkable lack of actual economic data. Mm -hmm. that seems to be brought into these courses. The syllabi don't really go into any economic metrics. Uh, they're operating at the level of sort of a general accusation instead. Is that how they get away with it? Yeah, I mean, they, you, you, you don't need specific evidence, you know. Uh, you, you basically have these uh, assumed, you know, it's, it's assumed that, uh, that capitalism has uh, an um, increased inequality across the 20th century. And so you just run with that. You don't need data. Hit, you know, the humanities operate very differently than social sciences, as you're aware. Yeah. Well, but actually, general question. Do you regard history as humanities or social science or sort of a little of both? I regard it as humanities. I like the humanities. I love the humanities. I, I'm a, I, history is my love and passion. Number two is literature. Uh, and... I, I, I'm not much of a numbers guy. You know, there were, some historians have tried to, um, to publish uh, what's called, called quantitative history with a lot of numbers and data, and I'm not as into that. I like the, the narrative, the storytelling. Um, yeah. I like uh, uh, studying the great, great men in history and how they impacted the course of events. Um, and for me... Uh, that that that's my passion. However, that can be abused and misused, and in in, in this case, I think it absolutely is. Yeah, and, you know. I mean, in in some case, would you say that this isn't just bias? It's sort of partly incompetence. They aren't trained to do the work mm -hmm. that will shore up their generalizations. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of well. There's this whole uh, field in history called new history of capitalism, and these are historians who are writing about the history of capitalism. It's remarkable. Very few of them uh, really understand economics. <laughs> and actual trained economic, economists have contradicted their findings and, I mean, just absolutely eviscerated their findings. And they just ignore these articles and keep C on come, going. Come on, John. <laughs> they aren't historians. I mean, they're not, they're, they're not going to be doing peer review. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, why, why, why worry? Another theme is the strange neglect of the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, good, getting really poor, go, going into the U.S. Constitution, understanding the, the, the text, the structure of government, uh, it's either downplayed or just overlooked. I mean, yeah, you, you, you say that, you know, slavery was woven into the Constitution. Now let's move on to, mm -hmm. to something else. What, what is that about, would you say? It's it, it, uh, 
they they have others that it's i think it's just lack of interest in the case of many of these professors they they would rather focus on the social and cultural histories that one of the things we found was a, a lack of political history right um, very little talk about uh contested political elections right um presidential administrations were absent it's just a lot of again a lot of just identity like so if you could talk about the the constitution in light of identity they're going to fit it into the curriculum if not eh it, uh not worth our time when uh, i've got to mention this uh mark uh <laughs> i love this this was uh from a syllabus on uh dealing with the second half of the survey and uh <laughs> the final weeks of this course so this is dealing with late 20th century early 21st century final weeks of the course include the following topics these are all quotes Imagine you're an undergraduate student in this class, and the last four or five weeks, this is what you're learning. Quote, women's lib in second wave feminism. Then the next class was Native Americans and Red Power. Then the following class was gay liberation and LGBTQ activism. Next class, Chicano activism and Latino movements. Next class, environmentalism and green movements. Next class, a triumph of the right. Ooh, the boogeyman. <laughs> then, and then the final class... From witch hunts and communist hunts to terrorist hunts. <laughs> and there's your class. <laughs> Nothing about the, yeah. yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, so, 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 I mean, I guess, you know, 9-11 is really about the terrorist hunts. Uh, I, I get, you know, I, I, any, anyway, but I, I have a, I have a grave objection to that. I want to know when the trans class is going to be. <laughs> right. Or what Come about, on. We need ableism in there. There there we go. There 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 we go. Well, uh the rising interest, I think the the great recognition now. Well, I mean, we will say that this is you know, work you you people are doing, others are doing. This is now it's on the radar. We've got to do something about civic uh, education and bring it back you know, I mean, I'm not even saying conservative, just sort of a sort of a rough middle, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a, a broadly mainstream sense of U.S. history. Can we can we can we get back to that? Are there significant forces? As we, we just got a, a couple more minutes, mm -hmm. are there significant forces, Jonathan, that are at work to try to bring about a reform? There need to be, and I think the appetite is there. It's going to have to come from the state legislatures. Really? I think yeah, so. Yeah, I guess it's not going to come from the history profession. Right? It's not going to come from the inside. The, 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 the inside has too much of a stake in the, in the status quo. And there may be some you know, exceptions here and there. One of the funny things is actually faculty are some of the most uh, small-c conservative reactionary, reactionary people you'll encounter. You know, they don't want any change to the, how things are currently going. They want to just cling to the, to the old ways. And so I don't think we can, we can expect any real change from the inside. It's going to have to be external. Yeah. Uh, or, yeah. or from donors. I mean, we're seeing donor pressure right now um, flex some muscle in, at the Ivy Leagues. But even that, I, I don't think is enough. States need, states need to act. What has given you guys at ASU the support to do this kind of work? Hmm. Not the history department, right? I mean, I, I, I mean that you may have very good colleagues. I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to presume. I, I do. Anything. I, 
I get a I lot get, of good colleagues. I get along. I get along with uh, many of my colleagues, although we, you know, uh, it, it depends. But yeah. the the we have a lot of community support, so we have excellent donors, um, and and we receive we've received some startup funds from the state. So it's a combination of, of private and public funding. So so the legislature, some of the at least some 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 of the legislature like you understand. Yes. Oh yeah, we've got a lot of support in the legislature. We began with private funds. The university president at ASU, at ASU has actually been very cooperative and very yeah. friendly. So it yeah. helps to have somebody in the upper administration who who is on board. Uh, but well, private was, private well, donors. Crow, and, Crow was a Republican, right? Michael I don't. Crow. I'm not sure about think, that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. He's 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 about as good as you're going to get, I think, for a university president. He's been pretty good. He's, yeah, he's, he's been on he's been on board with what we're doing. I mean, we've so the center began technically a year ago, but we've existed in other forms since 2014 and done very well with a lot of support. So, right, right. But I well, think one of the recommendations, Mark, uh, if I if I may, one of the recommendations please. that we that we put forward is um, ed, an educational transparency act that state legislatures should um, should require academic units at all public universities to make their syllabi publicly available. You know, we we conducted this study based on a syllabi that was available. There, it was hard to track down. I mean, it's yeah. very very difficult. Let's bring it all out in the open. It's taxpayer money. Bring out the syllabi, uh, make it publicly available, easy to access, um, include student enrollments. We, we recommend a, a two-year report of uh, occupational outcomes for each major. You know, so how are you doing? You know, right. like, how, how are the students um, who, who get your degree? How are they doing? And, and that will, I think, uh, contribute to um, accountability and and so those are small steps. Um, I, you know, th there will have to be down the line major reforms, and and I think uh, different states are experimenting in different ways with that. I'm not ready to completely abandon the universities, though. I think you know there are some people on the on the right who uh, have thrown up their hands, and the universities are done, not worth it, get out of dodge. Um, why should we surrender these these great institutions? Yeah. No, I mean Harvard is worth fighting for. Yeah. It's 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 existed for almost four hundred years. It gave us, uh, you know, Henry Adams, and uh, you know, think of some of the great figures who came out of Harvard in the nineteenth and in, into the twentieth century. And we're just going to give it up? I'm not ready to do that. I think I think that we need to find ways to re to capture these institutions. But it's going to be a a tough fight, and uh, but it, it's one that we've got to do. Indeed. So uh, for, uh, for, for now, uh, the group is the Center for American Institutions at ASU, Arizona State University, ASU.edu. Uh, Professor Jonathan Barth, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Mark.